Hi, this is Sheila Murthy of the Murthy Law Firm. We are truly delighted and honored to have so many of you participating in the Murthy Law Firm monthly teleconference series. Um, I have with me two of our incredibly smart and brilliant lawyers, um, Korzad Mehta, who's an attorney in both the H-1B department and does a lot of the medical doctor-physician kinds of cases for H-1s and in the non-immigrant area, and Adam Rosen, who has been doing a lot of green card type cases, particularly in the PERM labor certification department area, and actually is also uh, going to be uh, possibly expanding into the new compliance area that we've been talking about a lot, because I'm sure many of you are aware of what's been going on in the world of compliance and investigations and audits. So, Korzad, let's get started with the H-1B labor condition application pro process. What is the current policy in terms of the attestations on the LCAs that an H-1B employer is making today? And is that going to be changed under the new ICERT program, which we're going to focus on in today's teleconference? Um, the four uh, attestations that an employer makes when filing a labor condition application, just to review, are that the employer promises to pay a wage which is greater than the actual wage, for, the, for that um, job offer or the prevailing wage for that job in the area of intended employment, okay. um, that there is no strike or lockout at the facility where the employment will take place, that the wages and working conditions contained in the labor condition application are not going to adversely affect the wages and working conditions of other workers who are similarly employed, and that notice of the filing of the labor condition application, also known as the posting notice, has been posted in two conspicuous locations at the job site for 10 consecutive days. Now, um, those attestations do not change under the ICERT system. And actually, as far as the LC labor condition application LCA goes, uh, there are no policy changes. Mm -hmm. The ICERT system is simply going to be a change in how the U.S. Department of Labor collects data mm -hmm. by and through the labor condition application. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So the two biggest issues, obviously, from the employer's perspective are, I guess, the actual wage, prevailing wage requirement, which we see all the time with the audits and investigations, and also the posting of the notice at the job site, which could be the end client site, and those are continuing to be requirements, and they're big issues because, again, as we often point out, all of these attestations are signed under penalty of perjury and cannot be taken lightly. It's a big, big deal, and that's what the government is using in their audits and investigations of companies. Okay, so with this new ICERT program, then, um, is there any kind of a substantive change that is occurring? And, you know, what exactly is happening and why are we doing this? Well, ICERT has been designed to to bring both of the major programs that are administered by the Employment and Training Administration of the Department of Labor, both the temporary uh, H, H program, the H-1B, the H-2A, the H-2B, as well as the permanent program, which is labor certification, under one electronic portal or umbrella. Um, you know, Sheila, our, our discussion is going to focus on the uh, temporary portion of this, the H portion, the mm -hmm. uh, labor condition application. Mm -hmm. So substantively, the form is not going to change. However, the types of data that are asked on the form are going to change, and there's going to be a, uh, a new format for the collection of this information. Wonderful. 
And I understand that there's now no longer going to be the traditional, the DOT code, and there's a new code that's coming into place. And what's the purpose of this change? Now, well, the DOT code is has been been being phased out for a period of time and you know it's being shifted over now to the onet codes which we have been using in the permanent perm context for the last three or four years. Um, the purpose for the change is to bring both of the programs in line so that st for statistical purposes as well as data collection purposes everything remains equal. Okay, super, super. And in terms of the um, similarity of the LCA and the I-129 petition, I understand now there may be some kind of new requirements in the checkoff asking if it's a new employment and concurrent employment. Can you explain a little bit about what this change is and why they're you think they might be introducing this new concept? Sure, Sheila. And actually, you know, we'll we'll be able to see this um, in much greater detail when the new form is rolled out. But USCIS specifically requested that the Department of Labor include a section in the LCA which allows for greater specificity f for the purpose of why the LCA is being filed, be it for new employment or an amended petition or a change of employer petition uh, or something of that nature. And that data, which will be collected by the DOL, is going to be very, very useful to the USCIS for purposes that we don't know as of yet. Now, our clients are very well aware, as are we, that a single LCA can be used for multiple employees. But the, but the beauty of the new form is that that remains the case. You can still use a, a, a one LCA for multiple employees. You just have to specify the number of each type of LCA, each type of filing bases in the LCA petition. And since that is probably a little more complicated, it's generally advisable to have each separate LCA for each individual, though I guess I've had, when I was talking to somebody earlier today, the client actually said, but that's such a nuisance for us because that means we have to have hundreds of them posted at end client sites rather than just one or two. So obviously that's a decision for the company to make on whether you want dozens of LCAs posted or just one, but if you do only one, then it comes back to the issue Korzab just mentioned on how we need to actually count whether it's new employment or concurrent employment or what have you, which is definitely more difficult and onerous on an employer or the HR team to uh, manage, to track carefully. Uh, what is this whole ish thing about the locations? I know that's a big issue, and I understand now there's more opportunity to mention more locations, and that is a big problem for especially IT consulting companies that have been struggling with this location issue on the LCA because that's the reason for a lot of the Department of Labor LCA audits. What, is, what do the new forms allow now, and what's the significance? Yeah, well, the new, the new form allows for an employer not to put two, but actually three uh, work, work locations on so the So you're saying LCA. there were only two allowed until now? Yeah, a primary and a secondary. Okay, now so before two and now three? Yes. And it can be all three concurrent or one, th well, can they be three where they're one after the other? They can be three one after another. Uh, obviously, when we file a petition, we would have to ensure that we uh, provide an itinerary mm -hmm. with it to show that there's a um, there, that there's movement between these uh, different anticipated job sites. I see. So that is a very good point to mention if that's a possibility, because if there's a good likelihood that the company or the IT consulting company has three, two or three very major contracts, they expect to move employees in those. They can actually mention those, and then if they end up having to do additional LCAs, they could do that 
separately and later either as an LC amendment or if it's not done in advance, then possibly an H-1B amendment as required by law. Again, a quick pointer to mention in this, because of the LCA location, we've had a lot of people ask us, do I really have to file and spend the money on the filing fees for an H-1B amendment or hire a lawyer? And the answer is generally no. If the LCA was filed and certified prior to the employee being relocated to the new work location, but if the company decides to transfer the employee prior to filing and obtaining the certification of the LCA for the new work location, then the H-1B amendment must be filed, and this is based on different USCIS legacy memos that have been sent out from time to time. Okay, okay, terrific, Korzad. I think this is going to be extremely helpful for companies, businesses that are processing H-1 petitions for employees. What is this issue about the alternate wage surveys? I know Department of Labor likes to use their, the Brightline Safe Test. What is the benefit and what's, what's the new form? How is it dealing with this issue? Well, the, uh, the regulations allow for an employer to use an alternative wage sur- survey to, um, to justify the actual wage that they're off- offering to an individual employee in an area of intended employment in, an, in a job classification. The, the new form allows for certain uh, other uh, surveys, to be, survey, surveys to be utilized in the in the determination of this uh, wage level or this wage source, uh, additionally, the Department of Labor Labor provides uh, a list of acceptable surveys, and the Department of Labor does require that the names of these surveys be accurately put into the system for certification purposes. I see. So that means that unlike previously. Unlike the policy before, you just cannot go to a, a somewhat acceptable source or a commonly used source. You have owned, you're limited as an employer to only mentioning the acceptable surveys as listed in Appendix 2, or no? No, no, not no. necessarily. The employer can use any survey that uh, that fits within the uh, regulations, the requirements of the regulations. Aha, the these time. are just n- suggested acceptable surveys, not yes. it is not a limitation. So keep that in mind because I know a lot of people when they look at the law and look at the regulations and they don't quite understand the nuances, they say, okay, if it's not one of these, we can't use it. And I guess the reason the Department of Labor doesn't want to limit it is because there could be issues about, you know, helping a particular uh, company uh, evaluation, uh, if a company that is uh, pre- preparing the prevailing wages, and they certainly don't want to do that or limit it in a free market economy with freedom for any other business to come in and do what it does. Another very, very important change that I thought was helpful because we've actually discussed this among when we attorneys have various discussions at the Murthy Law Firm is the issue about how a dependent, H-1B dependent employer and the willful employer are sort of clubbed together as if if you're dependent, you're automatically somehow, because it says and or a willful employer, uh, I think one nice, useful, beneficial change in the new form is that it actually separates the, the two. If, is, yes, is, okay. yes, absolutely, Sheila. There are now two questions instead of the one combined question. An employer can, with greater specificity, dis- describe or dis- dis- designate themselves either as an H-1B dependent employer or a willful vi- violator. I'm sure the companies appreciate that to, rather than being clubbed together. And finally, uh, Korzad, I know we want to get on right to the H, uh, the after the LCA, the labor, uh, the green card portion of it for the 9089 forms. But the last question really is, what is the big change that I understand is ex- to be expected in terms of? timing and obtaining the approval, because before we would go online, zip it out in two minutes, and then file the H-1 petition. 
Is that not Sheila, those days are over now. Um, the day of the seven-second certification, what we've been used to for a while now, is now done. The regulations r allow the Department of Labor to take up to seven working days to, to certify labor condition applications. And the Department of Labor has not once, but on many occasions, stated emphatically that they are going to take the uh, up to their allowable regulatory time to certify these LCAs in order that they can have greater quality control over the certifications that they make as well as avoid uh, any kind of aspersion onto the, on the integrity of the program through erroneous certifications. Aha, uh -huh. and was there any good reason? Was there a lot of bogus stuff going on? Or? Well, an anecdote that one of the Department of Labor officials uh, shared with us was one where a labor condition application was certified for the, the position? position of governor of Ohio, and the employer wow. was Fidel Castro, who is now the incapacitated dictator of Cuba. Well, I can understand why they're embarrassed and why they need to take more time, so it makes perfect sense. <laughs> it is embarrassing, and you know we appreciate the Department of Labor um, taking a little more time as long as there's actually a real bona fide review and giving employers what they require because the regulations do require a turnaround within seven days. And to, prior to the uh, online system, it was quite common for the Department of Labor to take up to 30 days in some cases, which was extremely frustrating. Um, and I know a lot of employers were talking about suing the Department of Labor for breaching their own regulations. So let's hope that we don't get back to those uh, days of um, incredible delays, which certainly won't be who filing promptly. Um, okay, that, that was a wonderful and useful uh, overview of the LCA process, Korzad. So, Adam, we jump to you. We jump yes. to the green card process. We jump to the uh, form, the ETA 9089. Philosophically, yes. what exactly is the Department of Labor planning to do under the new ICERT program? I know it's sort of similar thinking or mentality, but what is their sort of big overview in terms of wanting to make these changes? Well, the Department of Labor explained that they are not making any policy changes. And our sense at their public briefing was that they are very, very particular about this one point, that they do not want to be making any policy changes, and they don't mean to make any policy changes. But what they're going to be doing by expanding out a lot of the existing questions and, and adding one or two new questions is collecting a lot of data. And when I say a lot of data, I mean a lot of information. And so really the question that we're going to have to see get answered over time once the new system is operational is, what exactly are they going to do with this information? They may start ordering supervised recruitment on more cases. They may issue audits that are more focused and more particular. And we'll get to that later on to explain how some of the changes have been implemented by the Department of Labor in order to help, to some extent, the employers filing these applications so that you can give information to the Department of Labor on submission of your electronic form, since you're not providing documentation with the application, perhaps one of the Department of Labor might not issue an audit, or they may be able to focus their question when they do issue an audit notification letter. Okay, okay. So let's delve a little bit deeper into some of the specific items on the forms, because I think it will help companies and their HR understand how to complete this information just to make sure they're on right the right track. So... What are the options in terms of um, the employer information? What, what should, what, you know, can you give some suggestions to companies? Sure, Sheila. There's two interesting things that they're going to be doing. One is that under the current system, if you're going to have an attorney file your permit application for you, 
the employer actually sets up, creates a sub-account for the particular attorney who then goes in and files the application. The new system is going to allow the employer, as always, to set up his or her, the corporation's own account, but will allow an attorney to create his or her own account and file the application straight from that account. Now, the design... So you're saying separate, not as a sub of the employer, unlike the prior rule? Exactly. The new ICERT program, practically speaking, is going to be designed account-wise to look very much like the current labor condition application system. Uh So if you are a company XYZ, you can set up your own account as you can now. But if you are the Murthy Law Firm and, and company XYZ wants Murthy Law Firm to file a perm case for it, for one of its employees, Murthy Law Firm would set up its own account and with, of course, permission from company XYZ, file that application. Now, what happens once it's filed? How does company XYZ know that it's been filed? How does a random company with a random attorney know that the the attorney has only filed an application with permission? Well, if an employer actually has its own iCERT account, there will be some kind of update to the employer's own account that an application has been filed through iCERT. But separate and apart from that, just like there is now, there will be a sponsorship verification email that goes out from Department of Labor to the particular company saying an application was filed on your behalf by such and such attorney and ask a series of questions that are currently asked now to verify the existence of the company and that, in fact, this employer is sponsoring this particular worker. I see. And I guess part of it, for those who are not familiar, was because of some misuse of the system and exactly. certain uh, people going to jail and because of violations of federal law in making up accounts and doing fake certifications and fake processing of cases, which was the reason they had started creating it under the uh, employer sub-accounts. Exactly. Okay. So, of course, big issues from the employer's perspectives or company's perspective are issues pertaining to the prevailing wage and job opportunity and job job descriptions. But before we get into the job opportunity, Adam, explain a little bit about what are the options for the prevailing wage on the forms and how do we address that? Well, the prevailing the default for submit for requesting a prevailing wage and the kind of the source for the wage is going to be the Department of Labor's own wage survey, the Occupational Employment Statistics Survey that every, that many people use for the H-1B program. And unlike for the H-1B, you actually must request a prevailing wage determination. Now, when you get your prevailing wage determination, and if it's using the government's wage survey, you fill in that information with the wage level and all the other information that's on the form that you get back. But, like with the H-1B, you can use an alternative wage survey. Now, the law has various requirements, and the surveys that the Department of Labor have specifically named for the labor, certifi- for the labor condition application may also be usable for the labor certification program. And again, if you do use a wage survey like that and it is acceptable to the Department of Labor to issue this determination, you just have to make sure to complete all of the information, including the name of the survey, correctly and completely on the application form. Wonderful, wonderful. And I understand that starting in uh, next year, in 2010, there will be a switch to some sort of a national center for prevailing wage determinations out of Chicago? Yes, Sheila. Actually, I spoke with one of the DOL officials at the public briefing who said that, in fact, they have a new prevailing wage form for the National Processing Center. It hasn't been released yet because they are focusing on trying to release the new labor condition and labor certification forms. But from January 2010, the only place you will be able to get a prevailing wage determination from will be the Chicago National Processing Center. 
I see, I see. And, but they're still going to have to look at local variations and all of that, but through one central office as opposed to multiple states. Exactly. The rationale that they've explained to us is that they want to centralize the expertise and develop a knowledge base in one national area because this is a national program. Well, conceptually, it makes a lot of sense. But as they say, the devil is always in the details, and let's hope that works out. Exactly. Okay. So the big issue from the employer's perspective, of course, is job opportunity. The whole issue of worksite location. Yes. What are the options? Well, this is one of the good things about the new form. They're giving you a lot of uh, options. The, for, the job opportunity information, particularly the worksite location, starts out with actually four options. And the fourth option get, actually just asks you to fill in an open field text box. The range of geographic locations are offered, whether it's a specific location, even an employee's private residence if he is working remotely from his home. If there is no one specific location that you are aware of, or if there may be several metropolitan statistical areas that the employee would be working in, traveling over, let's say, the southwestern part of the United States, there is also an additional open text box that you can, as an employer filing this application, trying to give the Department of Labor some understanding of where the job is to just explain. There will be some form of limit on the number of words you can provide, and the Department of Labor does want explanations to be as short as possible, but it does give you the option to explain, and as they've explained to us, they want and would really like people to actually provide some instruction, direction to where exactly the job location is. Okay, okay. Wonderful. And this includes, for example, the travel, the people travel jobs and stuff like that? Yes, definitely. There is an option to mark off the employer's headquarters. There, the open text box is there to use to explain that the job, the nature of the job is one that requires working at a particular client site or a particular uh, or several different client sites, or they may be unanticipated if you have somebody working six months in one spot and 12 months in another. It's or there. constant, like with a lot of the IT consultants exactly. having to move re- routinely for their work and not knowing where the contract or the work may be located uh, down the road. What about job description? What is considered a full-time job? What is cons- Because that is one of the requirements for the green card processing, yes. obviously, is that the employer must show a full-time position. And I understand that the Department of Labor has kind of clarified that and even tried to explain it for unusual occupations. Well, um, the standard is that 30, at least 35 hours is a full-time job. Now, there are certainly occupations that normally a full-time is less than that. Um, some of the some positions might be a teacher, for example, as one person raised the issue. And what we were told is basically that the existing policy position on a particular occupation remains the same. There has been there is being no change in policy on what is defined as a full-time occupation. So if it was considered a full-time occupation before this form is implemented, it is still a full-time occupation afterwards. Even if there it is the kind of occupation that would be less than 35 hours, but if there is some policy from Department of Labor recognizing because of some unique condition or unusual nature of this kind of occupation that X number of hours is full-time, 
this new form does not change that. Very good, because I think that is a big deal for a lot of university-type positions, teachers, professors, researchers, because even though physically they don't have to be sitting at a desk from 8 o'clock to 5 o'clock or 9 o'clock to 6 o'clock, the fact is with their research and corrections and dealing with students after hours, it ends up being, in most cases, well beyond the 40-hour work week, but the physical requirement to sit at a desk is usually less, and I think there was a concern from some employers, but Department of Labor has, I guess, been helpful in clarifying that issue. What about this shift? I understand now there's a shift. Before, we always used to say there's a USCIS component and then the Department of Labor component. But here you now have Department of Labor sort of saying what can be the requirements for a position like the BSN-5 or the MSN-3, and they've come up with additional computations, which may not work in the USCIS context. But at least let's go through the Department of Labor issues. Well, Department of Labor is allowing um, is creating a place on the form for an employer to list up to three sets of requirements. So under the current under the current version of the form, you can have a primary set and an alternate set. And they've redesigned the form to one keep the education and experience and whatever other kind of training or um, cred- other types of credentials that might be a requirement from a potential applicant for the position in one unit, and then you can you can opt for alternate sets of requirements. So the form will actually be designed so if an employer has three kinds of requirements that it would accept for a particular position, the form has been redesigned to provide a place to put that in. Wow. Okay. Okay. Good. And, and what about different fields of study and... Different fields of study as well. The um, types of degrees, they've also changed that as well. Under the current system is, for example... Somebody wants to require a, a medical degree. Um, there is an option for um, other to mark off. There is also an option for doctorate, and I believe that sometimes people may have marked doctorate as opposed to other. The other category has been defined with some of the kinds of degrees that are anticipated for using that kind of category, and there are enough open text boxes in the form that you can put explanation. Under the current form, there's a box that lists special skills and requirements that is currently used for various kinds of things, uh, including provide some more more detailed explanation by an employer of something or other. And that box will still be on the form. I'm forgetting right now where exactly it'll be, but it'll be there. So you can still use it as sort of a miscellaneous place like you currently use on on the current version of the form. Okay, okay. Now, I know there's a whole series, and only lawyers understand this. Most non-lawyers or HR people may not focus. Whenever Department of Labor, we get together with them during our annual meetings or conferences or liaison meetings, etc., they usually use language like, well, this is not going to be acceptable under the Kellogg language. And it's sort of, we know, and most, I think, non-lawyers understand it has something to do about requirements. Can you briefly, in like a minute or so, explain what does Kellogg language mean what is the Kellogg case and how does it actually translate into an employer employer's requirements or how to complete the form, Adam? Okay, sure. Kellogg is, an, is a term that comes from a Department of Labor case that was fought out over a denied labor certification years ago, and so that's where the term comes from. Essentially, that case involved a situation where a, an, a foreign worker being sponsored was qualifying based on alternate requirements that the employer had laid out. And so what that means for us today under the current PERM system is that if you have somebody 
who is only qualified for the position under one of the alternate sets of requirements, then there's some additional language that has to be added into the application form. Now, under the current version of the form, essentially what you have to say is that any suitable combination of education, training, or experience is acceptable. And there is no specific place on the current form to put it. And so many people like ourselves here will use um, box 14, which is special skills and requirements, to just throw it in there. It doesn't say where to put it. That's just sort of what we use. But what happens as a result is that sometimes people just don't list it. Em employers will file an application, and not being lawyers who spend their time reading over these rules in detail, they don't That's put why the you hire a good lawyer. Exactly, Sheila. And so what the Department of Labor has decided to do, thankfully for everyone, is to actually put on the application form an explanation of what you need to do. And there will be a place on the form that says, I accept or I do not accept, and next to those printed texts, there will be a place to actually type in, I accept or I do not accept. And so it will not be possible to file the application form without going through that. Now, one of the things... So it'll, it'll actually say the employer is willing to accept an all suit, any suitable combination, and then you, the employer has to check off either I accept or I do not accept. Yes, it'll provide... Basically what it says is that when you have to use this language and it'll tell you what the language is, and it has a place to tell you to write, I accept, I do not accept. Which is actually excellent, because I know I had a couple consultations last week where the employer tried to do it on their own, because they mm -hmm. didn't want to waste money, uh, spend the money, invest the money, I guess, in hiring an attorney, and came back after a year, 14, 15 months, it came back with the denial of the perm, and of course, the individual was very, very upset, because they had forgotten this magic language about the suitable combination being acceptable to the employer. Right, and what we've been told is that the Department of Labor has designed what they like to call twinkling lights into the program so that if you are going through the application form and there are things that you have left out, to some extent and for some things, there will be warnings essentially that you've moved, you're trying to move ahead and haven't properly completed it. And to some extent, these twinkling lights, that, as they call them, should help the process, but there is nothing perfect, um, as we've learned with the PERM system, and there may be tweaks and such, but they've put in something like this, which I think is probably one of the most valuable changes to the form in order to avoid a problem that you have to, you're required by law to include this language on the form, but there is no specific place on the current version of the form to put it, and so many people unfortunately miss out on it. I see. And again, this really sort of issue is dr really drives home the point, the importance of either truly investing the time, the effort, the energy to understand a very convoluted and complex process of uh, the labor certification where the Department of Labor believes that it is their mission on this planet or that they were created to come in the way of sponsoring a foreign national even in regular good times, but even more so when they feel that the economy uh, is a little more uh, wobbly and, and tough. And part of it is that the employer or the individual or working with sometimes inexperienced or younger, um, less experienced attorneys sometimes who are not familiar or attorneys who work in multiple areas of the law, they do not have an appreciation and understanding of the subtleties and nuances and complexities of immigration law, particularly labor certification. And then uh, years later and thousands and thousands of dollars later, um, people are 
are now trying to clean up the mess and trying to get approvals, which really could have been avoided because it comes back to the issue of, um, you know, uh, uh, prevention is always cheaper than a cure. Okay, without right. belaboring the point, and the Kellogg language is really useful, and I think it really is an incredible example. The, there's the other big important issue that we hear of all the time about business necessity because almost every single consulting company in the country, the individual employee says, please file my case EB2, whether I'm eligible, whether the job requires it, whether the job doesn't require it, whether the company can afford the prevailing wage, etc. What is business necessity? How does that work? And we know that it impacts companies and individuals. Well, as briefly as possible, business necessity essentially is the Department of Labor asking an employer to justify its requirements when those job requirements exceed what the Department of Labor's occupational surveys say is quote-unquote normal for the occupation. So, for example, for most IT occupations, the DOL's way occupational surveys say that it's normal for a person to be required to have a bachelor's degree in two years or a master's degree or four years to enter into this kind of job. But if you have a job that might require, let's say, a bachelor's degree in three years or a master's degree in one or, let's say, a bachelor's in five years, the Department of Labor's perspective is that's not normal. Regardless of the fact that there may be a whole slew of companies that require that for a particular position. And so what happens then is the Department of Labor requires that employer to explain the business necessity of these requirements being excessive, quote-unquote, for the particular position as well as for the business itself. And now the form has been redesigned to add some places to provide a brief explanation so that perhaps, again, either an audit can be avoided or they can focus their specific question when they issue an audit letter instead of asking for everything under the sun that might exist, asking a specific question. Wonderful. And uh, I also understand from just experience that if they believe that the job, um, that the job requirements have exceeded the SVP um, and the employer's business necessity is not either satisfactory or whatever, that, the that it could lead to Department of Labor audits which could delay the approval of the certification of the perm. Unfortunately, that is the case. What we have seen is that a, a case can take significantly longer, a year, two years, if there has been an audit by the Department of Labor on a case because the requirements exceed what they say is normal. Okay, okay. So let's jump. I know these issues are really complex, but let's now go move on to the issue of recruitment information. How does that work and how is it different now? Well, for a job that, for most positions, it actually doesn't really change much. They've tried to elaborate and basically break out into specified sections the different kinds of recruitment. If they're supervised recruitment, that is where the Department of Labor issues instructions to an employer to conduct certain types of recruitment, there may be some employers that before they're going to file a case, they already are under an order from Department of Labor that they will have to conduct supervised recruitment. And so the form has been changed to account for that situation. And so there will be fields that will be grayed out depending on how you answer the question. So, But for most typical cases, if you have, let's say, a professional, let's say a software engineer that you're going to sponsor for the green card, then you the f boxes that are there to provide information about recruitment have essentially remained unchanged. Okay, okay. And is this new form also going to have information um, on the whole issue of um, 
the foreign uh, nationals' background and information? Yes, it will have a, s- a place to put the person's education, the person's experience. It'll have a separate place to put any skills that the person has earned. It'll also have a place to put training that has been completed. Now, again, the form itself, there may be a situation that you encounter where you don't feel that the form has a place to put information. And essentially what what I think is necessary for anybody to do is make the form work for you. If there is information that needs to go in there to tell Department of Labor about a specific credential that the person has, find a place that is as appropriate as possible to get that information to Department of Labor. Okay. And uh, just going back to the earlier point, so is it a really scary thing for an employer if they are now required to undergo supervised recruitment? I mean, is that like a a big problem because it's an audit, it could delay everything, and it's a reason for concern? Well, it it may take longer. That's certainly something that always raises concerns with with everybody because we want to get our our cases approved as fast as possible. But everyone should remember that supervised recruitment is not something new that's been created by Department of Labor. Supervised recruitment did exist before the PERM system came into place, and it's something that the Department of Labor has periodically ordered, and they issue instructions on how and when to conduct a recruitment. So while it's certainly something that nobody wants to have to deal with, it's not something that I think we need to be scared of. It's something that if it happens, we deal with it and we move forward. Okay, that, that is uh, very good to know. Uh, finally, uh, I know we like to end within the 30 to 45 minutes, and we're coming pretty close to our uh, time frame. So what are the specific concerns in terms of declarations and, you know, sort of summary analysis of what the employer needs to be concerned about in terms of also what if there's a change in their name or if they wish to change the attorney's name? How does that process work under the new forms? Well, the declarations are for the most part the same. The one, sh- the major change that has that's being made is given the change to the law back in July of 2007 that prohibits anybody other than the employer sponsoring a worker from paying for the costs and fees related to a labor certification, there is going to be a statement to that effect, that the employer is the employer is paying for it, that the employer is not re- receiving reimbursement from anybody for any costs or fees related to that application. And the Department of Labor is taking it very seriously because, in fact, the, the rule that introduced this change to the law was called the anti-fraud rule. And so they've added this additional attestation. Now, as far as changes to the employer's name or to uh, the attorney, the form has an added section to make those changes. Either that would be done when the application form has actually been certified, if the application is subject to an audit, and so a signed copy of the form has to be provided to the Department of Labor, you can do it at that point. If you have a change to your attorney, there is a place for that as well, to put the new attorney's information. The Department of Labor is also requiring a letter from the employer to whether it's Department of Labor, if it's in response to an audit, or if it's to immigration, if it's after the labor certification has been approved, basically explaining from the employer on their letterhead saying, we have now hired such and such attorney to represent us in connection with this application. Wonderful, wonderful. This has been wonderful and really useful. I'm sure that the uh, employers can at least, if not, pick up every single nuance or every single issue that was discussed in fair uh, fair detail today, at least be able to understand that this is a fairly complex and convoluted system that really requires uh, in-depth understanding of the issues in order to protect the company and its employees. Well, well, if I could just interject, Sheila, one good thing about all of this 
change, despite its complexity and concern that many may have about it, is that there is going to be a window of about 30 days from when the iCERT system and the new forms become operational and usable, when you can still use the current PERM system and the current labor condition application system. And that's during just the month of July of 2009, because August 1, everything changes and becomes mandatory. Right. The Department of Labor is going to issue a notice in, their federal, in the Federal Register with the specific dates, and within that 30-day period, you can actually use both systems. After that 30-day period closes and the ICERT is the only system that you can use, you can still check your PERM cases status in the old system and you should be able to request withdrawals of existing cases, but you won't be able to file anything new. Okay, okay, super. Um, So to try and wrap up, on behalf of all of us here at the Murthy Law Firm, uh, my two wonderful, brilliant speakers and attorneys, uh, Korzad Mehta and Adam Rosen, and myself, Sheila Murthy, We are truly delighted to have you participate and attend uh, today's teleconference with us. We understand that these issues are extremely important for companies, whether you're processing H-1B petitions or processing labor certifications for green card for your employees. Um, We are happy to continue to work with you and help you because our goal, like yours, is to protect yourself as individuals, whether you're owners or HR representatives, to protect your company, your business, so that you can continue to partake of the American dream of living and working in this incredible country that still, in spite of all the ups and downs, is still the land of opportunity for millions of people that come to our shores, and to continue to help your employees achieve their American dream of living here with their families. We thank you for being a part of this incredible economy, the world's most powerful economy that is going through a bit of bumps here and there at this tough time. We look forward to continuing to help you with all of your immigration matters and guiding you and helping you as you make this difficult process work out for yourself and your employees. Thank you so much and have a great day.